first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I sat down with David Ryan Holger. David is the founder of All Tech is Human. He's an international speaker, commentator, and tech ethicist, and a passionate leader in the responsible tech movement. Please enjoy Episode 1, Our Avatars, Ourselves. Empathy in Tech with David Ryan Holger. Well, hi, officially, David. Hello, hello. And um, I would love to know in this time of quarantine and remote work where you are coming to us from. Can you, if you could give us an audio tour. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can give an audio tour right now because I have not cleaned my uh, office. I think I need to spruce it up a little bit. Right now, uh, I, I run the organization called All Tech is Human that acts as a hub for the responsible tech community uh, and movement, and that's based in Manhattan. Uh, so I tend to usually be there, but right now, uh, with, with COVID, I am sitting in uh, West Hartford, Connecticut, uh, but itching for things to get, uh, to get better and, and hopefully be back in Manhattan pretty, pretty soon. But as of right now, I am sitting in a cluttered office that I have outfitted for podcasting and a lot of live streams and far too many Zooms, I got to say, uh, <laughs> doing way, way too many Zooms. I think that's uh, kind of wearing me down a little bit. I know. We, have, we, we, we didn't uh, invest in Zoom at the right time about a year ago. We could be wealthy by now. <laughs> I, I guess so. And who would have, who would have thunk that, right? Because uh, obviously Skype has been around for uh, many years, and then uh, Google Hangouts, then transferring now to Google Google Meets, and then you've got uh, Facebook getting involved with their rooms. So everybody and WebEx, you know, with Cisco. So everybody's been involved in the space, but for whatever reason, Zoom. Maybe it's the name. Maybe people like the name Zoom, uh, and they said, "Hey, let's go, let's go to this. It's catchy." It's easy to easy to sneeze, you know. Easy to remember, remember <laughs> Zoom. But as it grew in popularity, uh, obviously people started pointing out its own, uh, you know, smaller smaller issues. So that's always what's interesting, right? Is like yeah. people people jump on something and they're like, "Well, wait a minute, what are we on? How do we how do we make this better?" Of course, there's like the the, the extra added where it used to be, you know, what room are we going to have this conference in, or what are we ordering for lunch as a team? Now it's these are the things that we have to negotiate and. Uh, I'm really interested to talk to you about this whole situation, about things like Zoom and other mm -hmm. things that um, that have become so prominent in the remote workspace because you, as someone who says all tech is human, yes. um, I feel like you are just the right person to talk to about the ways in which remote work has um, added either levels of difficulty and on the other hand, levels of intimacy to yes. work with people that we didn't, that we didn't previously have to face. And that, that's definitely an area I'm really grappling with and, and thinking about because I, I, the, the, the tough part is, as you know, right, going through, through COVID right now and, and dealing with our kind of, um, uh, institutionalized racial, uh, racism that, that we're as a society, I think grappling with, it's a very 
stressful time, right? Uh, people are going through a lot of trauma. A lot of people have lost their, their, their jobs. People know others that are sick or may maybe have passed away. And that means that all of these workers, right, in these remote spaces are carrying their own kind of personal dramas. Mm -hmm. And I think doubly hard is that people might feel that their personal drama pales in comparison to the uh, to the trauma that, that other people are facing. Mm -hmm. And that means that oftentimes they're not willing to to verbalize their own their own kind of struggles. And I think from a remote work um, function, it becomes tricky because you want to find out how your colleagues are doing, right? And you, you, you want to, to have them emote and, and understand what, uh, what's going on in their personal life. But at the same time, we're constantly trying to understand boundaries about somebody's personal space and personal life. So yeah. I think that it, yeah I think that's made it very very um, difficult right now because you want to check in with somebody you want to let them uh, express some of the frustrations some of the stressors in their life but at the same time we're constantly trying to juggle the difference between our personal life and professional life I mean maybe you could argue that that we're we're really blurring the lines between our personal life and professional life. Wow. Yeah. I, that's actually literally the words that I wrote down to ask you about is those blurred lines of the personal and the professional and how, um, for instance, I'm coming to you now. You can see behind me. I'm in my childhood bedroom right now. That's <laughs> probably a thing that I would be, you know, openly sharing in a professional sense, but because of times the way they are, you, a total stranger, are getting to see things, you know, um, that, that, that nobody else would. And I wonder if you yourself have found some, some tips or, or, or tools to, uh, to ease colleagues into conversations, given, given the, the, the settings like that. Uh, how have you been successful in that way? Yeah. Well, I think this is where everybody has to have the freedom to share or not share. Yes. So the, the backgrounds, actually Zoom backgrounds are a major point of contention right now, specifically actually in the, the college space where attending a college used to be seen as the great equalizer, right? Everybody's in a classroom setting. Somebody is a trust fund baby. Another person is pulling themselves up from the, the bootstraps, right? The great they American. They all live in the state. same dorm. They all live in the same dorm, right? They all live in the same, usually crummy dorm. Yeah. <laughs> but now, now what you're seeing is that in a COVID world, you're having one person who, who might have a really busy kind of background and juggling a lot of things and somebody's screaming and somebody needs an, the, the computer and they're having internet issues. Mm -hmm. And then you see another person who might be taking the Zoom call, you know, in their lush backyard with a pool and a hot tub. So it's really putting the socioeconomic differences really kind of in our in our face. So I'd say from a work environment or for remote work or people you're talking to, you really have to understand that uh, people need to have you know the ability to 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 decide for themselves what they what they want to share. So for example, that's why a lot of people utilize the um, you know kind of like uh, Green, uh, green screen backgrounds for, right. for Zoom, or but a funny kind of background 
you can also blur them. So that's a recommended kind of kind of feature as well too. If you're saying, wait a minute, maybe I don't want to share my background. Maybe I don't want people to critique what books are on my uh, bookshelf. <laughs> I mean, that's that's another option as well uh, because yeah, you're not you're not just seeing a person. You're now seeing their their kind of relationship to the world, or, or their or their standing in in the world, or their uh, maybe their you know not just their location, but potentially um, their their wealth, which is something that again typically would have been a person opening up to another person, as opposed to now it being kind of pried open to the to the world at large. And I think that's a major shift that we're that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, agreed. Do you do you personally seem to be a, uh, an extroverted sort of a person, but also someone who's really at home with tech? Do you feel like now that the more the world is moving into this remote workspace that you are, like, does it excite you? Do you feel like it's um, comfortable for you? Are you, wow? it's your role to like help other people love this digital way of being? (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. And the reason why is, is I would say that we're trying to make the best of what we have. We're trying to maximize our digital tools and leverage them and get the most out of Zoom, let's say. Mm-hmm. But I certainly would not go as far as saying that that it's the equivalent of, of human to human. If there's one thing that I desperately miss, it's coffee house meetings. It's shaking somebody's hand. And I and I'm gonna say that because there are there are you know certain people and they've done polls on this too uh, right now that that are saying well you know maybe we won't go back to a lot of these in person conferences things like that and maybe we should get rid of the handshake maybe we could just bow or something like that that like uh, like you know l- learning from other cultures mm-hmm. but I like the handshake because I, I I do think and maybe maybe it's just my upbringing uh, but I do think that. We need ways to indicate to somebody that they're our friend and that they're not just another random person. Because think about it, right? Uh, how many people do we interact with when we're on, let's say, social media or something specific like LinkedIn, right? There's thousands of people that I'm connected with, right? So I'm connected with these people. But obviously, I don't know thousands of, of people. I don't know thousands of people's personal situations or their birthdays or their, their desires or their hobbies, things like that. So we always, as humans, we need some way to indicate that this person is closer to me. This person, I'm going to give more information. So they even you know, show that with relationships that usually when you meet somebody, you give them access to like a certain small percentage of who you are. And that as a relationship develops, you start saying, all right, let me tell you about my upbringing. Let me show you my childhood home. Like that would be something that would usually come, you know, uh, a little like, further down the line. A little further down the line. It's not the <laughs> not the first Zoom. It's a little much for the, you know. So you you would say, okay, let me tell you. And actually, now that I, now that I'm, you know, showing you my childhood home, let me tell you about my my dreams when I was a kid and what I wanted to do and my aspirations and where I am now and what I still want to do. Right. So you expand access to. To, to knowledge uh, over over time. So I think a lot of what we're going through right now is we're critiquing our digital tools to say, here's where they work well, and here's where they don't work well. And I think one thing that 
Zoom or, or digital tools are great at is easily connecting a wide variety of people. So, for example, in a lot of the work that, that I do with, with All Tech is Human, we've been able to hold events that now, instead of having to be in New York or San Francisco or Seattle, where we held events last year, now we can have somebody who's attending from Belgium or somebody from you know, Australia, wherever. And that's exciting. But the, the flip side of it is I'm still left feeling that there's a certain level of emptiness. There's a certain level of emptiness in terms of how much of a connection we formed. So, for example, when you have physical events, somebody can, can feel your presence. Somebody knows they look at your nonverbal, right? They'll try to make eye contact and they'll say, okay, let me, let me talk with you. Wow, and then they'll comment on, on something or wait, let's, let's look outside, let's find a commonality. That's a lot tougher when everybody's just online and using digital tools because we don't have the ability to understand when somebody wants to talk to you and when they don't want to talk to you and when they, when they want to go and have a drink at the bar and when they want to go uh, to, to the restroom, right? So we don't have a lot of these natural cues. So oftentimes now we're just throwing everybody in the room like they're betta fish and saying, okay, socialize. Well, social, socialization doesn't actually work that way because we tend to flow in and out, the, you know, deciding on like who we want to talk to, who is kind of on our natural wavelength. So I think that's going to be a lot of it. I'm also really fascinated with how we can expand a lot of these, these tools. For example, I've had... Uh, with, with a lot of work, I've had a lot of uh, presentations, right, where you're presenting to people over Zoom or some other type of platform. And the same thing, it's actually a lot tougher than when you're standing up in front of an audience. Because when you're in front of an audience, you're looking at somebody, you're looking at their gaze, and you're saying, wait a minute, they're happy, they're excited about this. Okay, this is good. Let me, let me extend this out. This is really good. Or another time you might look and say, wait a minute, people seem confused. Oh, Maybe I mentioned a, a term where I just use an acronym that's that's very you know uh, that, that that needs to be explained. So let me right. go back. Cues. The nonverbal cues. Yeah. And it is very difficult, if not impossible, to read nonverbal cues online right now. And I think that's mm -hmm. something that, as time goes by, we're going to have to extend out and say, well, how can we understand this? Are there ways that people could kind of send their nonverbal verbal cues? I would also like to see, and maybe this is, a, this is an idea we can start. I really would like to see some form of like uh, applause or clapping or you know some reaction. Well, Zoom does have a little a little tiny applause icon, and it's funny because I I've I've done a couple of Zoom shows as a comedian and storyteller mm -hmm. now, where uh, you know everybody's everybody's muted except for the performer and the host and are encouraged to uh, hit the little clapping uh, icon or to visually show like with, you know, sparkle fingers or, or yes. other things where you can see it. But I agree with you where when you can't, when you can't get the full sensory atmosphere of being with other people, we don't yet know how to duplicate that. We don't know how to duplicate pheromones mm -hmm. through a computer screen, you know? Um, but but so, okay, so what you're, you're presenting a very good case for the importance of like the grounded humanity. Yes. Right now. So what Definitely. I would love to know about you, David, is mm -hmm. what in your early life got you on board with that? Because, you know, when you were a kid, when I was a kid, you know, 
tech was less. I had AOL dial-up. And Mm -hmm. eventually we all form our individual relationships with that tech. Obviously your relationship was so compelling that you made it your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's been a bunch of uh, pivotal uh, moments over, over the years that emphasize to me about how important technology is about uh, what it relays. Uh, you know, one of them, I think, has really uh, struck with me. I remember years ago, I mean, you mentioned like early on, like dial up and stuff, but uh, a few years after that, uh, when Facebook was just kind of, you know, expanding outside of colleges and, and, and growing, uh, I had this, uh, this person I knew in high school, and you'd always get those early on, right? Mm-hmm. You'd always, that was kind of the cliche of Facebook when it started is that you would, you would get all these uh, friend requests from, from high school people that you, some you talked to, some you were friends with, and other people you kind of just barely knew. And, and I got this friend request, uh, you know, from, from this, this individual, Jared. And then just like a, a week later, as it kind of hung in there, I found that he, uh, he killed himself. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. And the, the friend request was, was, was still there, right? Right. So it's still kind of hung, hung there to say, Jared wants to be your friend. Right. And that meant a lot to me because I said, wait, wait a minute. This is very unusual because I heard from my, my other high school friends that Jared is no longer here. Jared died. He killed himself. But still online was, was a notification, right? And was a, was a picture was an avatar of a person mm-hmm. saying, I want to connect with you. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's, that's really kind of messed up because it's playing with my, my emotions, right? It's, it's altering my, my feelings about, um, about life and death because you're like, wait a minute, this person is virtually still alive. But then I'm, I have a dissonance because I, I'm hearing that, that he is dead. So that meant a lot to me. And, and I thought, wow, you know, what we're designing is so crucial because it's impacting the human condition. It's impacting the psyche. It, it, it impacts your view on the world. Uh, and that's a big deal. And I, and I emphasize that because it showcases how much thoughtfulness we need to have around that. And then right after that time, uh, you know, that, that's certainly something that Facebook really started grappling with. Uh, it actually happened in a uh, kind of infamous media story for them where uh, a father's uh, daughter uh, had died. And then the Facebook algorithm, which would send you back photos of, of something that maybe like was taken a year ago. Hey, here's, here's something you, you know, you celebrate this. This happened, uh, you posted this a year ago they kept on posting photos of this guy's dead daughter. And he got really disturbed by it. He said, well, I don't wanna see, I don't wanna see these photos. You're bringing up something that is painful to me. And that's when Facebook had to hire their quote unquote compassion team. It's since changed its name, but then they hired a bunch of, uh, you know, psychologists and, and sociologists and philosophers and others to, to tackle some of these issues to showcase that what we're, what we're creating, these, these kind of social networks and notifications, 
on one hand, if you're an engineer, it seems like, okay, well, somebody posted a photo a year ago. Let me send it back to them, right? <laughs> right? This person sent a, a friend request. What's the big deal? And then you start realizing you're actually dealing with somebody's life, right? You're, you're dealing with their emotions. <laughs> and it's, this is a big deal. Yeah, it's yeah, easy yeah. to devalue or minimize it because it feels like if it's behind a screen, yeah. it's not as real somehow. It's I not know. as tactile. And that's why I think it's easy for it to get away from us. But I think that your story is really beautiful and illustrative of the fact that there are, at any given point, two of each of us existing. Yeah. There's, the, there's the one in the flesh you know, with, with the body. And then there's the avatar, as you yeah. said, yeah. and they're actually two different selves that we have to cultivate. And just because one self is in a computer doesn't mean that it deserves any less care. Right. And I, and I think that's something that is the great struggle of the 21st century of, of even owning up to this dissonance that we have, that we are presenting a digital self and we're living with a physical self. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes when the mismatch is so great, that can be a point of friction because who are we, right? Exactly. Uh, as, our, as our digital becomes more and more of our existence, are we, are we the person right on, on Instagram or are we the person uh, in our pajamas at home who's, who's struggling with something, right? Uh, the affirmation that we might receive online in a more transactional type of relationship can can create uh, confusion sometimes when we, we think okay how come how come my loved ones aren't as as naturally supportive where's where's their thumbs up right why are they critiquing my uh, my my behavior just because they see more of your behavior because they know you and I and I think that's that's tough is that uh, social media platforms oftentimes allow us to so heavily curate our, our lives to a point that is never going to mimic the messiness of real life. For example, every time I post, let's say, you know, uh, on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever, I, I check my grammar, I write, <laughs> I think about what I'm saying, I craft it. And that's different than if I'm talking to my wife, right? Because I'm saying what's coming to my, my brain or I stub my toe or I'm upset about something or I didn't get enough sleep. These aren't, these aren't the, the same types of ideas that are going to come out when I'm saying, all right, what's my brand? <laughs> you know what that? Well, what's your totally brand? Different thing. Yeah. Your brand might not necessarily reflect exactly your authentic inner self. And, I know. um, you know, for a lot of people, I think they use that as a shield to hide behind. Of course, yeah. To something to break through. You know? Right. Well, and but that's also since you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of the early, early kind of web as well. That's also something that has been a great philosophical question about what the what the web should even be, because on one hand, with the rise of the web, it was supposed to offer. Uh, the exploration of of self and identity, so that's actually why why people would still advocate now for anonymity or pseudonymity is that you need to to explore uh, you need to be able to have a judgment free 
type of zone, right? You need to try on new outfits, right? And especially for a younger audience, I often, in my work, I, I tend to deal with uh, teens and tech and, and mental wellness, things like that. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, there's been a lot of pressure to say, all right, make be careful of everything you post online. One bad post, you're not going to get in the college of your choice. You'll never get a job. You're no going to have a digital, no pressure. You're going to have a digital <laughs> footprint that is going to follow you around. Hey, I hope you do well, but if you screw up, you're screwed, right? That's a lot of pressure. And uh, what, what we need to back up and think is that's completely not the point of the web. The web is supposed to be saying, especially if you're a high school student, wow, how can I, how can I expand my mind? How can I be more creative? How can I have more joy in my life? How can I challenge myself? So a lot of times you would, you would need freedom to, to explore. And, and one thing that worries me that I would push against is that if we connote all of our postings online to, to a employment you know, career or, or getting into a college, then we're totally missing the point is that uh, you know, social media or the web is, is not designed to, to always just like get you a better job. It's also supposed to be designed to, to uh, expand your mind and expand your, your life and expand your, your friends and your hobbies. Absolutely. And we missed, we've, we've missed that, that point a lot of times over the years. I mean, I think, yes. And I think what's been so interesting about this quarantine is that so many of the wheels of uh, daily capitalism have come to a stop, have necessarily come to a stop. And it is making us question even more and put a, put a, um, uh, a microscope on um, what is the purpose of the web and was it, you know, because if, if you're only talking about your brand or talking about setting yourself up for, for future possibilities, uh, that's putting the entire purpose of the web into, you know, how can I climb the ladder as opposed right. to yeah. how, can I, how can I expand myself outward and expand my mind and learn. Um, so I think that what the kind of a cool side effect of the quarantine as terrible as the virus is, mm -hmm. is that people are getting to find new ways to use their technology, you know, in the absence of their daily nine to five job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would definitely say that's been a, a major benefit is that it's almost making the web weird again. Yeah. Truly, <laughs> truly, because one of the, one of the criticisms over the last couple of years uh, would be that the web has become very corporate. Yes. It really has, right? Because if you think about it, the, the web originally was supposed to be set up like, wow, it's the web. Where are you going to go? You don't know. Mm -hmm. And then over time, because there's just too much, like people get overwhelmed, it had to be consolidated. And then especially, you know, with a platform like, like Facebook, the idea is that it could be akin to the web. Like, hey, there's, there's, no, there's no web outside of it. And that's why with something like news and stuff like that, they would want to house a lot of it kind of internally to basically say it's this, um, you know, kind of closed, closed ecosystem, right? right? Or a walled garden uh, that they would, they would call it. Uh, but I think that the, the uh, you know, COVID-19, especially in an area like, uh, you know, comedians, uh, and shows, it's really caused, caused people to say, all right, well, then what can we do a little differently? Right. So, I mean, something I've been fascinated with is, 
how they're even doing like plays and like or like shorter plays like how how are we doing that through through zoom or other other forms of digital media or how can you be meta about it and then make it so it it takes advantage of of zoom so how could you do something like a like a clue type of murder mystery or something like that <laughs> through it through using some of these these natural features you know i think that every every change in medium changes how we craft our messages because we Absolutely. tend to craft it to leverage the uh that, that form right uh so so i think right now we've we've really altered our our ways that we we uh communicate and our ways that we we emote um yeah so it's it's fascinating to see how we're going to come out of this differently so so here's a question you mentioned mm -hmm. uh the web as being a corporate place and something that i was wondering about for you is whether you think that the accelerated rise in remote work will actually lead to sort of a, a disintegration of corporate culture or corporate etiquette uh, because of the fact that everyone is now in their homes and that that the you know the the personal and the professional are now blurred do you think that do you think it'll affect like the corporate world uh, I think it's going to have to affect the, the corporate world. Uh, I know one thing that, you know, uh, New York real estate is concerned about is, is, wait a minute, if people don't need to buy these really expensive offices, what's going to happen? Right. Uh, you know, I probably wouldn't invest in WeWork. <laughs> you know? um, right. So how is this going to, how is this going to change? Uh, I think that, that there's going to have to be more flexibility. Uh, I would say the biggest change is hopefully going to be the uh, final nail in the idea that work and time are connected. So for example, mm -hmm. most, most companies still base, uh, you know, still base standards on here's how many vacation days you get, right? Here's how much you're supposed to work. Here's what the work day is. Right. And now that we've moved into a remote workforce, it's it's finally pointing out the absurdity of that. Is that you know so many of these, as as people would point out, they say, well, that's kind of based on uh, you know um, our our move towards a factory system and and what we were thinking about, and you know making widgets on a on a factory line or something like that. Right. And at the end of the day, if if we're a knowledge worker, we're not producing widgets. Right. So uh, it's not like eight hours is one more hour than seven hours because because every hour I produce 50 widgets. Right. Right. We, we're not working that way because, you know, for something like my work, it's it's actually based on you know, connecting people or coming up with ideas or writing articles or creating slides or doing talks, things like that. So it doesn't matter if I work. 75 hours a week or 35 hours a week or 25 hours a week uh, it matters what i accomplish right what's and the quality of what's the, the quality what's the quality of that so i i think that that our, our change with with covid and and everybody kind of working from home is that uh it, it blurred the time of like how many hours you put in so i think we're hopefully going to, to move away when, when this starts again and to say, you know what, we're, we're going to judge people, uh, we're ju judge 
employees based on what they what they actually produce and what they what they accomplish and move away from especially the kind of this this, this American idea of, uh, of of kind of overwork in, in the sense that we're influenced by how many hours somebody else works and how much how many hours our boss works. Uh, you did see a movement before COVID where you had some companies that were getting rid of vacation time, something like that. And, and that uh, is very counterintuitive to a lot of people because every time a company would remove vacation time, people would say, well, wait a minute, does that mean that everybody's just going to, you know, you know, hardly work? They're never going to come in the office. They're, they'll be in Tahiti. And that's not the way it works because at the end of the day, people are still hired for a purpose and they want to fulfill that purpose. And then also, we have other reasons about why we work outside of outside of the kind of like the uh, the stick of like punishment of, of not working, uh, or even the carrot of of mon uh, monetization or of money as a reward. Uh, in case in point, since since we're talking about the web, would be uh, you know there's a, there was a great example in the web's history when when you had the rise of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's probably a lot, a lot of times forgotten history uh, for a younger audience. But uh, at the time, Wikipedia was actually going against uh, Microsoft and Carta. And I Microsoft, yeah. So the, <laughs> the idea was Microsoft spent a lot of money and they hired the best professors to create really high quality content, right. but it's really expensive, right? And you would say, well, how would, how would a ragtag group of people all throughout the web who are going to kind of edit each other and, and add to this, who are working, by the way, for free, right. right? How would that compete with these highly paid, learned professors who are going to draft out really high quality content? And as we know, right? Uh, Wikipedia wins and it wins because the web allows us to work for ways that do feed our soul. It allows us to be connected with projects. It allows us to, to see, you know, something on Kickstarter that we might want to get involved with to, to watch a YouTube video of seeing, you know, what's going on in the world and how we can get involved. That's always been part of the, the, the purpose and, and something that I always find really valuable. I love that. I love the idea of, um, you know, the web was actually started by the collective for the collective, as was Wikipedia. Yeah. And, um, and it's only moving more in that direction. Um, and, and, and what you're talking about, like work for the soul, brings me right back to the point of this whole conversation, which is empathy in work, which you clearly bring so much of it into work. And that's why you got involved in tech in the first place. And um, I would love if you would tell me about um, a moment in your work history where in whatever job it was, whether it was your first job in high school or whatever, mm -hmm. when empathy uh, played a role or a moment in which you wish empathy had been there. Uh, yeah, I would, I would say that uh, I currently struggle with this into the point that we were talking about is that it's tougher to oftentimes empathize with somebody when you just see their their avatar right as opposed to when you're in a room with somebody and you can can know that if they cut their finger they are going to bleed 
blood as opposed to a string of zeros and ones, that they are more than, than what you see on, online. And that's something that I constantly forget and I constantly remind myself and I constantly have to remember. Uh, and, and, I, and I say that because in, in so much of my work, I, I tend to feel a lot of pressure to um, constantly network with a, a ton of people. Right. So honestly, like 90% of my life is probably networking. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I enjoy it. You know, I'm, I, it's probably one of my strengths. So it's good. But I will say that, that sometimes the trap with that, where I always have to remind myself about empathy at work, is that since there are so many people to interact with online, mm -hmm it's very easy to, to get caught up in a trance where, where you become very transactional. You say, all right, well, there's, there's thousands of people that I, I need to connect with, right? So even take a, something like LinkedIn. If I know that there are all these people that I need to talk with, but I only have so much time in the day, that oftentimes makes each interaction that I have more stressful in, in the point that I say, okay, well, I hope this is valuable because I've got 30 other people who, who need to, uh, you know, who, who want to chat. So, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes there's a lot of meetings that, that I can't take just for just like how you balance time. Sure. So that also means that every meeting that you do take, you, you feel a sense of pressure to say, God, you know, I, I really hope that something good comes from this. And I will say that that is a struggle. For, for empathy, because oftentimes, if you are so hyper-focused on getting something, then, then it's very easy to forget that who I'm talking with has a life. Right. And maybe something's going on in their family. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe, maybe their, their loved one lost their job. Maybe there's a financial stress. Maybe they're, they're losing their house. I don't know. Right? There's so much that I don't know. And if I am thinking that their persona of, of their kind of LinkedIn profile of what I read before the meeting, if I think that their polished bio that highlights their achievements, if I think that that is the be all end all, the alpha and the omega of who they are, then I am completely missing a window into their soul, right? Into, into, what is actually going on? And, and that's what I, I constantly want to remember with empathy at work is that there's so much I'll never know. And therefore, I need to constantly be, be ready to learn and to be ready to unlearn and to be ready to, to listen mm -hmm. as opposed to constantly think, all right, I've got 20 minutes. What can we accomplish in those 20 minutes? Right. And then view it in, in too far of a transactional type of type of manner and I think that's one of the greatest struggles is that we we oftentimes do uh, oftentimes try to form transactions with humans that are messy in terms of their uh, emotional kind of being and and desires and and, and life that's in flux mm -hmm. especially right now with everything going on well I appreciate that so much and and 
I, it sounds like what you're talking about is a level of mindfulness that you yeah. bring with you into every conversation, whether or not you're talking about personal things with someone, you have that, you have that, that soft voice in the back of your head saying, pay attention, listen, this is a person. And I think that that's such a useful practice. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, David, it has been such a delight to talk to you. And I really enjoyed it. I think we, we both, uh, you know, learned a lot. And that's what's even great about something like this. Yeah. Is, is you, you go in directions that you didn't know, uh, you know, were there. And, and that, you know, even exposes other parts that we, we want to kind of continue working on. Amen. Well, thank you for letting me into your personal workspace there. And, well, thank um, you. Uh, is there... Uh, is there anything um, that you would like to um, plug about yourself before we, before we check out? Well, uh, you know, I, I am both in the physical form and the virtual form. <laughs> so, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I do hope uh, people can reach out. Uh, at the same time, uh, I do wish that there were more of me to be able to uh, write more thoughtful emails back and things like that. But, uh, yeah, you can always find me. Uh, at uh, if you go to techethicist.com, I'm also at techethicist on social media and uh, LinkedIn. Uh, you can can find me, uh, David Ryan Polgar. Uh, I use my full name so I don't have any Google gangers. It's <laughs> another story, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can you can find me and and hopefully uh, when things clear up, we have the chance to to meet in real life. I really look forward to it. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much, David. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the inaugural episode of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. You can find more about David and his projects at davidpolgar.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-P-O-L-G-A-R.com. And follow him on Twitter at Tech Ethicist. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E dot A-P-P. Q-Man first, everything else after. Q-Man first, everything else after.